The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York. Today is Sunday, August 14, 2022. I am your host, Tony Sabeel, and we have a great hour talking New York sports coming up for you tonight. We have special, special guests tonight. AM New York's Brooklyn Nets beat writer, uh, co-host of the very popular Hockey <laughs> Night in New York, uh, Mr. Christian Arnold is in studio with me tonight and is going to be in studio with me the entire hour that we're here. We have lots and lots of stuff to talk about. We're going to talk about the suddenly dysfunctional Brooklyn Nets. <laughs> we're going to talk about the New York Islanders and the domino that may possibly push everything that Lou Lamarillo has been working on for the last six weeks may May happen today, may happen in two weeks. We don't know, but we're going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk some uh, some baseball. We got the surging Mets. We have the somewhat struggling Yankees. We got a lot to do. So, or to all, uh, uh, welcome to my my guest and my in studio partner this evening, <laughs> Christian Arnold. Christian, my friend, how are you? I'm well. I'm excited to be here, Tony. I, like, like I've always said, when you come on Hockey Night in New York with with Shawnee and I. Um, I, you know, you've always been my favorite person to have on, and I'm excited. You know, I wish I wish we could just do you and I with hockey uh, in New York. Well, so you know what? I won't I won't miss a chance to take a dig at Shawnee when I can. Well, absolutely. And look, and now we, he's not even here, so I we know. can just talk about it's him, and that's fun, it. Though. I, I don't know. think he knows how to work a radio, so I think that we'll we'll be probably I mean, half safe. the sports we're going to discuss tonight. I'm pretty sure he doesn't understand. Yes, no, that's 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 for sure. Yeah. We know that it's just it's hockey, and that's the end of it. I mean. He knows his hockey. That's yes. that's great. And but, we'll be know, talking plenty of hockey. Yes, we will. We will. We have a lot to discuss because uh, we're going to start off with that because there's a lot there's a lot that's been said um, everywhere within the hockey circles on social media. As we know, the cesspool that is you know Twitter <laughs> and Facebook and yeah. so on and so forth. But you know, Lamarillo has gotten beat up a little bit um, this this summer. Uh, you know the firing of Barry Trotz and the hiring of of Lane Lambert, which you know we'll we'll discuss a little bit about the big trade that he makes at the draft, acquiring Alexander Romanov for his first round pick, and then it's just silence. Mm-hmm. There's nothing, nothing's going on, and you know, look, we've seen Lou in action now for the last couple of years. He just he does he does things his own way, and. He has really kept everybody in the dark this summer. And if it isn't, it's that he's holding a gun to their head to make sure that nobody <laughs> talks about it. Because little things have come out. Yeah. Like little, little dribs and drabs about, you know, what's gonna, you know, what's on the, what's down the road. We, we know that he's gotta sign Noah Dobson. You know that he's gotta sign, uh, Romanov, his newest acquisition. Uh, is he gonna bring in another defenseman to play in that third pair? Was he gonna bring in a scorer? And now we're starting to, you know, we're starting to hear little rumblings about that. So, you know, what are your thoughts on the summer of silence? Yeah, I, uh, I'm certainly someone who doesn't understand it. I don't understand the alleged, uh, advantage that the Islanders, uh, that Lou Lamorello think he, thinks he's giving the Islanders by the fact that he's not telling anyone that they may or may not have signed Nazem Kadri. Um, I think this is such a crucial summer, not only from a hockey perspective, but from a business perspective as well mm-hmm. for the organization that, 
it, it seems a little silly when you think about it. Everyone knows at this point that Al, that uh, Nazem Kadri is basically an Islander. Uh, you know, I think that the secret's out. Like anyone who doesn't think that Kadri is an Islander, um, you know, may not follow hockey at this point. Everyone <laughs> says it. I think every general manager across the league says it and understands the position that the Islanders are in. Not only with now having to st- now that they likely have a, a contract in a drawer somewhere uh, with Nazem Kadri's signature on it. But the fact that the Islanders also have to go out now and they have to move some pieces and they have to make some cap space and you know they have to sign uh, resign Noah Dobson they have to sign um, Romanoff um, and so I don't I've never understood this this t- this tactical advantage that that the uh, Lamarillo thinks he has by by doing this by keeping everyone in the dark when I think everyone kind of knows the situation. I agree, and yeah. you know, and you look at what happened at the draft uh, with Max Pacioretty, right? And that is a guy who is a is a good NHL player. He's mm-hmm. had some problems with his health the last couple of years, but when he's healthy, he's still a forty goal scorer. You know, he that's he's he is a still an elite scoring winger in this league. So, and he was given away. I, I, but Vegas, I now I think we kind of know why. Like you look at now, Pacioretty's out. What is it, six months or something like that? Now yeah, with I an injury, so, yeah. mm-hmm. and so it kind of makes a little bit more sense, right? The one thing I won't kill Lamarillo on too much is like the idea that you go out and you have to. You, you should be able to get every trade that uh, every other uh, every other team is getting, right? Because that's just not the way it works. This is an NHL twenty two. It doesn't work like that. Oh, absolutely. And I wasn't saying no, no, no. no I know you were, yeah. but I know people oh, do yes. that. I know people go. And that was a big thing with the Pacioretty trade because everybody was up in arms. And in fairness to Lou Lamorello, we don't know what the discussions were and we don't know what the the trading partners were disclosed. Mm-hmm. Did they know? Mm-hmm. I have to imagine if they gave up so little to get Pacioretty, right, that they had to be aware that this was a possibility down the line. Well, they knew that they also had them over a barrel because yeah. Vegas was over the cap. They yeah. had to move salary. They could not add anyone, and they had holes that they had to, you know, that they had to fill. So the fact that they, you know, we, we obviously we know why now right. Lamarillo didn't make the trade, but I think he's trying to to not have that happen, moving a Josh Bailey because. Right. Bailey is value, but is everyone it? knows what the like, no one no. It's not like it's a secret. Well, now it's not a right. secret, but two weeks ago, it was still pretty much a secret. You know, I mean, it, it, there was innuendo, there was this and that, but until Dave Pena and and Kevin Week started tweeting about this, nobody was really talking. I mean, look, you and I, right. we know how Lou works. So if you have a top flight free agent and nobody's talking about this person three weeks into July. You know that they're talking to Lou Lemmerer. Right. Okay, so you, you, you realize. And again, there's move, other moving parts that are here. Kevin Weeks alluded to four different transactions. Yes, now, yeah. He didn't say signings. He didn't say anything other than transactions. Right. So we don't know if it's one trade, if it's two trades, if it's a, if it's a UFA signing. To me, it makes the most sense if it would be two UFA signings, uh, and there, there are two, um, internal. You know, their their own you know clubhouse type right. stuff, which is you know sign Dobson yep. and sign Romanov, but some we know someone's got to go out, right? Yeah. So I think he, I personally think he's going to look to bring in a veteran for that third pairing. I don't think he likes to have his veterans around, and this is a situation where you know he can't afford to have the mistakes that were made last year when he got stuck signing Zdeno Chara and bringing Andy Green back for a year which look I liked Andy Green mm-hmm. you know he he was very very helpful yes. the year before but he was, was still useful last year somewhat yeah. somewhat oh, that's a good way but of putting it it's somewhat yeah, yeah. it was if you would put Andy Green in Chara's spot that's not so much of a problem but right. because you had Green now playing up mm-hmm. on the second pairing 
It got a little that's dicey. Where, is is nice. You could protect it. Yes, you could protect a guy on the third pair because you just don't have to throw them out there in those real crucial situations. Oh, yeah. But of course, that's what happened, and because you now you had two of the defensive pairs that were compromised because you had two guys that weren't supposed to be playing twenty minutes a night. Right. Okay. So. Uh, Romanov solves one of those problems, and he solves it really well. He's a real strong skater. He is a tank out there. He runs over people. He hits everything. He can move the puck. He's a real, you know, I mean, has he had his growing pains getting to sure. a 20 minutes a night defenseman? But remember how bad Montreal was last year. They were, te- they really were terrible. Yeah. So last couple of years, exactly. Well, but last year, yeah, they, didn't they go to the finals? Right, but they were not a good team that year. No, like, I mean just all those teams that came out. Yeah, you know? no, all those teams. Basically, is because Canada they had its own division, and they all seven of those teams were terrible, mm-hmm. and so one of them had to go to the Cup final. But they, t- they did all get. They had to go through all of them to get you know to get to the finals. So yeah, well, when you, I mean, when you go through the the bottom of the rung, it's still the bottom of the mm-hmm. rung, and then and then you saw what happened with Tampa Bay and 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 all those other teams. Yeah, it was. Too yeah. So, but I, I see what you're saying, and I, I I like the Romanoff deal. I think that if it pans out, it's it's a great addition for the Islanders. Mm-hmm. He's a young player. You're going to get him at a a reasonable rate for the most part going forward. And if you're being an optimist right now, hey, he's back in he's back in the United States. There was pictures of him bowling with, I guess, his fiance or wife, and um, Ilya Sorokin was there. Mm-hmm. And so that's they another. They played together, didn't they? I think there's some connection there. So you add that, you bring that to New York, you give Sorokin another player that's going to make him feel more comfortable. I think that's always a positive. And you, you kind of have that home connection, too, with him being Russian and uh, able to communicate in their own language and, and make them make the transition easy for everybody. So I think that's a positive, and, and it certainly was a it was an interesting move at the at the draft. Jeez, I can't believe how, how long ago that was and how really it wasn't that long ago. I know. It feels like so long ago, but right. that's how quiet things have gotten with the Islanders. So, it's a good deal. It's it's an interesting move. It, it Like I said, it gives someone that the Islanders can kind of develop into, a, a, you know, a talented player back on there on the blue line and hopefully it pans out, but at the same time, it's it's still a bit of a question mark and um, you know, the one thing I think a lot of people have talked about was the price tag that the Islanders gave up for him. Right, that first first round draft pick. Which, when you think about it, it's not the worst trade in the world. And, and considering the draft that was this past year, I mean, outside of the top five, no one really knew too many players outside of that. And so, what was the talent level that those players were really going to produce outside of the top five? And, and so, Romanov was a first round pick right. on his own. So you're basically just getting a developed first yep. round pick instead of having to develop him on your own. Pretty so. much. Which I take. I take that over the guessing game. Although obviously everyone was up in arms because there was so much stirring about an alleged JT Miller trade that was may or may not going to happen, or basically was happening, and then and then something changed. But it's certainly been an interesting offseason for the Islanders. I don't know how we gauge it and how we grade it right now because, A, it's not complete. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's nearly complete. And that's the interesting thing. But but I go back to my original point at the top of the show when you asked me what, what I thought of it so far, and I just don't understand the, the positioning that they put themselves in, right? Like this was essentially the strategy they went through last year, you know, keep everything hush-hush, quiet, quiet, and, and look how well – that panned out, which it, it obviously didn't. Um, you know, I think that it's it certainly it certainly put the Islanders in an interesting position going into this season, right? Like they're in such a 
there's so much pressure for them to be successful on so many different fronts now. After mm-hmm. after the last the three years prior to last season, you go in and have such a dud of a year. And yeah, people love to use the excuse of the COVID and the injuries and this and that. And I that's part of it, but it's not the main reason why the Islanders didn't succeed last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you saw that through some of their deficiencies early early in the season before any of that even came up. And yeah, and I forgot about it too. You had the the thirteen game road trip to start the year, right? Mm-hmm. So that that's part of the conversation too. But again, it wasn't the whole problem. And I think this year, to me anyway, I think is is really going to show what Lou Lamorello can do as a hockey executive in the twenty first century in twenty twenty two twenty three. Right? Like that to me. How does he handle putting together a competitive team that isn't just New Jersey Devils that have, he's he's ha, had played for him before, right? Or players that have played for him, and, and mm-hmm. we're still kind of going down that avenue too with this whole Nazem Kadri thing. He is a big Lou guy from yep. his time in Toronto. He's a big Lou guy. Um, there's a, a lot of admiration both ways, which is great. And Kadri was such a huge cog in why the Colorado Avalanche went and won a Stanley Cup. Absolutely, no question about that. But then the concern becomes if you start to see the numbers that are coming out there. At, at age 32, you're giving him a seven-year deal, and I think what we're seeing, seven, seven and seven or something like seven that. Seven and seven was yeah. what I saw, yeah. And so that's a lot of money to invest in a guy that's going into his, his age 32 year mm-hmm. of, 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 of playing. And we've seen the Islanders get burned by these deals before, too, when they go after the top free agent on the market. I mean, you only have to look at Andrew Ladd a couple of years ago, who was, I think, younger than Kadri, too, when he came into the Islanders that, at, at his point in his career. And mm-hmm. you kind of saw what could happen on the flip side of things, right? Like, that's that's a deal everyone goes back and go, oh, why did they do that? It, at the time, it looked like a great deal. Mm-hmm. So that's that's part of it. And and then you add in Kadri's a little bit older. Yes, he was so successful. And, and, and he's a guy that I would have taken on the Islanders a couple of years ago when... when there was a another player here that wore the number ninety one, mm. and what was this guy's name? They had they had a history together in playing in in, in the London London Ontario and um, playing for the for the Knights and and so I think it would have been interesting to see him here on Long Island a couple of years ago in in that capacity. It was never going to happen, obviously, but it certainly would have been an interesting thought, and that's maybe where I would have made that investment a little bit earlier. But right now. It does cause a little pause, at least for this team, at least for this organization right now, where they're where they are. I understand that it's win now mode, but also you have to think about winning a couple of years in a row because the Islanders' window is starting to close, and I think that you want to be careful of that. Let's win now, win one now, and we'll just see what happens after that. Uh, and I think that's the point. And I think the point is is that there's a couple of things at stake here. Number one, we're in that window. You know, you have mm-hmm. Pelic and Pulak and. You know, and Dobson now, you have, you know, three extremely successful defensemen back there. Mayfield is no slouch on his own, mm-hmm. but we don't know what's going to happen with that situation right. because is he going to get priced off of this blue line at some point or another? That's a possibility that because, will happen, yeah. well, because now he's a third line defenseman where on a lot, a lot of other teams in the NHL, he's playing second pair, no problem. Right. So are they going to pay him? You know, tip, you know, like money that you pay. You know, I'm not going to say he's going to get the same money that Pelican Pulak got, sure. but he's going to be like in that tier right below that. There are teams that would definitely give pay him, him four a and a half. Yeah, yeah absolutely, give him a good chunk of change. And I'm, I'm sure he'd certainly consider. I know he loves playing on Long Island and, and being part of this community. And mm-hmm. um, you know, I know he's basically set up his home here now on the island. But certainly, if, if the situation comes where the Islanders' price tag 
isn't matching what he's worth, it will be interesting to see what, what happens. Absolutely. There. So now you have so so you have first you have the window of opportunity mm-hmm. here with this with this current group. Second thing is is that Lewis eighty years old. Okay, he doesn't have that much more time left in this league. So you know, I'm serious. I like, know you, you might know, want to phrase. That. Well, I mean, okay, well. <laughs> So he, when you as said that, I was, like, I was yeah, like, oh, my God. No, funny, I'm, come on, I'm not going to go down that road. You know what's funny, though? I've I've talked to some people who know Lou pretty well. Um, and, I mean, he's a guy that I think would just keep working until basically but go, they put him into the box. And that's the, well, agreed. But this is the third thing, is that at this point, he's gotten this, t- look, he's done, in my opinion, he's done a great job. Okay? He's gotten most, all the free agents he wanted to sign, he got them signed. He got... Sorokin to come over here, mm-hmm. sign him to a his first deal, and then got him to re-sign at a reasonable rate for his second deal, and now he's considered one of the top ten goalies in the NHL. Yeah. Okay, so he's done that. He got Pulak, Pelic signed to under market value deals for seven years. Right. He's been able to do the things that have been deficient for him has been he hasn't been able to close a contract on the big star. Okay, and we we saw it with Panarin. Mm-hmm. Now we saw it with Gaudreau. Uh, you saw he wasn't able to convince. I mean, given he was only here for a couple of weeks, but he wasn't able to convince Tavares to come back. Right. So there were there have been is this this now lingering thing that's like hanging over his head, and the problem as I see it is that at some point or another, John Ledecky and Scott Malkin, who spent a lot of money, spent a lot of money on UBS Arena, spent a lot of money on this team in general between the practice facility and. You know, they've, they've done a lot to get this team to be an attractive destination, yeah. and he has not been able to close that door. So at some point or another, they're going to have to look at this and like, okay, we're going to have to go in the next direction. The same way that Lou felt when he fired Barry Trotz and hired Lane Lambert. So yeah. is it to the point where Lou has got to show that he can still keep up with these other guys and wants to continue to do these job, or is he fighting for being able to go out on his own terms? No, I think I think he has, because I've asked several people this, because it's been a question on my mind as well, and that's, you know, at what point does the leash for for management get a little shorter when you're not successful? And everything, everyone I've asked, everyone I've talked to, has kind of said the same thing, and it's it's really like Lou has full reign and full support. That that hasn't changed, and there is it doesn't seem to be any posturing or, or potential posturing where that could change anytime soon. So I don't think so. I think Lou basically has say until he says, "All right, I'm good, I'm done here," and he, he wants to take a step out. I think for right now, I mean, as long as the team is making some money, which they are, as long as you know they're they're successful and they're making the playoffs which i think even even right now i think they're still they could make the playoffs the question becomes are they a, a champion you know a Stanley Cup caliber team or not and i think that's a totally different conversation but yeah i think this season even with some of the bumps in the the road and everything you saw last year they still kind of gave a little bit of a push towards the end of the season where you know, people even kind of like maybe they could see them slipping into the playoffs if everything had to go right but so, like, you take that for a full 82-game schedule, yeah, that's a team that can make the playoffs, but it's a, first, a team that gets knocked out in the first round or second round at best at this point. So, I, I, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's Lou Lamarillo's team. The ownership isn't stepping in and saying, you know, there's an ultimatum or anything like that at the moment. Um, I don't think there's an ultimatum, but I, if he has, a, if they have a season like they did last year, we're not having this conversation next year. I, I don't know. I don't. 
necessarily know if ownership is ready to make that move as quickly as I think some people would would want it to be, I guess, so to speak, if mm-hmm. that's the case. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. In fairness to everybody, this whole season, you know, we could talk about all the all the pitfalls that the Islanders have gone through and, you know, some of the missed opportunities, and this team could still go out and surprise people. So that, they kind of have that charm to them in that in that sense. But right now, from everything I've I've kind of gleaned from, from talking to different people and trying to ask that same question, right, because like, I, I, I think that's the most intriguing thing. The Islanders are a team, an organization that for years have, have been, for better or worse, very loyal to the people that have been around the organization for a long time. You look I at how long Garth Snow mm-hmm. was there, yeah. right? Uh, Jack Capuano, um, you know, the list, go- uh, Rick DiPietro. The list goes on and on with, with some of these guys that have been lifelong Islanders because there's that sense of loyalty. And so I think that's still there in a sense with, with Scott Malkin and John Ledecky of what ownership and the, or I should say what faith the ownership has in, in, the, in the front office. And I think that's not changing anytime soon. Well, like I said, I I feel that Lou has done a good job. Other than the fact of he has not been able to wrap up that that big that big deal, you know that that star player. And Nazem Kadri would be considered a pretty big deal, considering that he was right. He's a big deal. I don't think he's that star player. Though. He's not. He's not Johnny yeah. Gaudreau. He's not no. uh, Tammy Panarin. He's not John Tavares. But he's an important. He was the second best free agent on this market. Yeah, and he would have gotten that deal done. Previous history aside, mm-hmm. it's still a good get for Lou if he's able to pull this off, which I think we have this conversation already at nauseum, but he, I think that he's going to be here. But here's my next question, which yeah. I, uh, I I find very interesting. Who is going to be the Islanders' number one center <laughs> on opening night? Matthew Barzell. No, I think... Um... The, I think the question you're kind of asking too is who gets moved to the wing, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the answer to that is Matthew Barzal, right? I because agree. it just makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. And I know we were talking about it before the show as well, where you look at all the centers, you go, you look, go down the Islanders depth chart and you look at everyone they have. And as good of a center Matthew Barzal is for the most part, right? He, he does have, does have some, some games where he doesn't play great in, in the faceoff circle. And, and those are big moments, too, and big missed opportunities. And I think that's something that's always kind of haunted the Islanders at different points during the course of years. Their struggles in the face-off circle, especially in the offensive zone. Um, but when you go down the list and you go down the depth chart, Brock Nelson is obviously your number one center. There's no question about it, right? You look at his numbers from last season, you look at the success rate that he had, and um, and the opportunities he was able to generate from being so successful in the face-off circle. Mm-hmm. He's the number one guy. Right. And so when you're looking at that top six group um, between Barzal and Brock Nelson, which where ultimately where Nassim Kadri fits into this whole conversation is being in the top six, the you know top six forward, it's got to be Barzal that moves to the wing, and it's got to be Kadri that jumps into the center spot there. It just it would be illogical to move someone like Brock Nelson, who's been so successful there at the center at the center position, and move him to wing. Now, I think Brock does have some experience having played the wing before. He has, but at the same time, I think you serve yourself better by moving Barzal over, keeping that option there. Yeah, I get you can move Brock Brock Nelson into the center position when you need to if. if you know, if it's a if it's a timely face off or something, you can send him out there and, and and put him in the center spot and then have him switch back over to the wing. But I, I think on an everyday occurrence, you want the best people in that spot, and it just makes sense to have Brock Nelson there. And I think too, look looking at Matthew Barzell, you're going to want to pair him with your best forwards. And Nazem Kadri, if 
if and when he becomes an Islander, is going to be one of your best forwards on the roster, and he has to be up there with, with Matthew Barsley. They have to be on a line together because those are two guys that, I mean, you basically bring a cadre in here to put him with the Barzal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's been so much conversation about Matthew Barzal and his skill set and him not being used in the right positions and not being deployed in the right spots during the game and not having the best personnel on his wing. Well, if, if that's all true, and, and in fairness, part of that, part of Barzal's success and some of his, his missteps are definitely attributed to the fact that he doesn't have a, you know, his, the, the players that they've been on his wing have been, not sometimes up to par with what you'd expect for a, a player of Barzal's talent, but it, and the it, expectation that comes along with yes. that talent. Oh, yeah, a hundred percent. I think mm-hmm. that's the bigger part of the conversation. But exactly. but Kadri is that guy. Kadri is that guy that you put there and you, and you look at and you go, that's a guy that should be playing with Matthew Barzal. Kadri fits the bill. Um, and, and you saw it this year in Colorado. Like you saw, right. he he's he was their second line center. He was hey, he got off to a great start. Then McKinnon goes down. And he has to jump into that first line role. Yep. And he was outstanding. Like he just yeah. never missed a beat. He, it elevated his game with the more minutes and playing, you know, on the number one power play unit and so on and so forth. So, guy had 87 points this year. I think it was 30 some odd points on the power play. Yeah. He won a ton of faceoffs. I think over 700 faceoffs this year. He is a he is a better all around center than Matthew Barzell is. Yeah. And I know that would ruffle feathers among the Islander fans, but, but there are a lot of people that understand know that. He but both Brock Nelson that. and Nazem Kadri are better all around centers than. Than Barzell is, and but Barzell, I think, without the defensive responsibilities of being a center and being able to just be out there with guys who can bury the puck. Right. You have guys like you have a guy like Lee, and you have Kadri, who again was scored thirty goals multiple times in this league. You're going to be able to set up. You're going to be playing with talented guys. You're not going to have to worry about you know guarding the middle and getting back and so on and so forth. He's able to kind of free you know you know kind of free reign out there and do his thing. And I I have to believe that Lane Lambert is going to take the leash off at least a little bit for him. I don't know. Like that's the big that's the other question too, right? Lane Lambert is also kind of the mystery piece in all of this mm-hmm. because Lane Lambert, while he is his own person, his own coach, and he's coached in in the minors and, and had a different style. But, I mean, he spent the last, I mean, a good chunk of his career under Barry Trotz and, and basically learning how to be a head coach from Barry Trotz. Right. And that's the whole other sort of confusion about the move to get rid of Barry Trotz and then bring in Lane Lambert because basically you're taking out Barry Trotz, who is one of not, there's no argument. He's one of the best coaches in the National Hockey League. You saw what he did with the Islanders. I know we were just talking about Lou Lemerell and the credit he, he gets for, for the Islanders' success. I think Barry Trotz... And I've said it before. I think Barry Trotz is more deserves more attribution to the Islanders' success than Lou Lamorello does over that three-year span where they're making the playoffs and they're going to the, the conference final twice. But take all of that aside, Lane Lambert is essentially Barry Trotz 2.0. And so, how much of a change to his style and to the style that the Islanders have already been playing? But we, do we really be- know that though? I mean, because he hasn't been a head coach for so long, and yes, he learned a lot about being a coach, right? From from Barry, and I think that has more to do with how to handle the locker room, how to handle certain players, how to handle you know the bench, and so on and so forth in different situations. I'm not so sure that the style is going to be exactly the same. I mean, I think it'll be similar, but I think there also is some question: is that is Barry Trotz's style and his game and his playbook is that 
sustainable for an entire season and then a long playoff run because these are t- these are these are teams that he coaches that try to wear other teams down right. you know physically you know mentally you know you know mistake free hockey like it's it's really tough to i mean it's a hundred games a year yeah. to do it so and you saw you know as you know as time went on those conference you know those conference runs you had certain guys that kind of ran hot and cold in the playoffs barzell started the playoffs horrible uh two years ago and all of a sudden he you know ignited during the pittsburgh series he did nothing against boston and then you had guys like Pajot who get you know you've had the broken thumb he's out there he's a shell of himself right so it's it's those things that you have to look to, but I don't know for sure that Lane Lambert is going to be exactly the same style that Barry's going to be. I think he'll handle the team mm-hmm. similarly, but I don't know that his, that his style on the ice is going to be exactly the same. No, and that's a fair point because that's part of the question mark, right? We don't know what we're getting out of Lane Lambert as far as his style, as far as coaching mythology, and and what what changes are going to be made once the once he's there and installed and you know they're on the ice so i think that's sort of the question mark as well i i do think he'll t- he's going to tend to be sort of a Barry Trotz 2.0 mm. i think that's why you go out and you get a Lane Lambert because he's he's obviously been book bookended as uh or i should say kind of bookmarked as the next great coach um and it's been surprising in the last couple of years that it's taken as long as it has for him to get a head coaching job anywhere in the NHL mm-hmm. and i think that's too why to, when you look at what what transpired with the coaching change, this is not this would be the least ideal position I think you'd put Lane Lambert in because it puts him in such a tough spot. Taking to go over out. his mentor's team, He's taking over his mentor's team after a bad year that wasn't Trotz's fault, and the expectation is this team has to go out and basically compete, be, get to the Cup final at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's no anything short of that it, it is really it's a disappointment. Be a disappointment. No no question about it. Right. Right before we go to break, I got one more question for you. And yeah. um, the Vegas Golden Knights need a goaltender. <laughs> okay, our former Robin Leonard is now is now injured on his shelf. He'll yeah. be out for the entire season, which you know is extremely disappointing because you know we all love Robin Leonard mm-hmm. and what he meant to Long Island when he was here. But talk about maybe Semyon Varlamov. Yeah, I mean that's I'm sure that's part of the equation of trying to make some of that cap space because I know he's got a, a decent chunk of change coming out of the Islanders' uh, salary cap right there with his contract. And at this point, I think everyone kind of knows that that Ilya Sorokin is the number one goaltender, and, and you can really kind of start to install him as they kind of had to do last year with Semyon Varlamov being injured to start the year. So he's basically the Islanders' number one. I, I don't think it's out of the question now at this point to look at it and go. All right, what teams do the Islanders have to start to hone in on as far as this is a place we can we can dump salary, we can move somebody to and I think Semyon Varlamov fits the fits the bill of what the the Vegas Golden Knights would need. Um and certainly it, especially with Robin Lanner being down, being down and sidelined and uh it really is an unfortunate turn of events for him and and for everyone that loves him on Long Island but I think that would be a pretty good match right right, right? if you right can't off the bat. right off the bat like if you can find a way to make that deal that's not a bad not a bad spot to end up in and you can get something for him instead of trying to just get him off your books now you can actually get an asset maybe not a premium asset right. but at least you can get an asset for him because now Vegas is in a position where they're going to need a starting goaltender. They they have a team that they can't just go with an Oscar Dansk for the entire season. So you you, you need somebody. So it's to me it's a very interesting thing because now Lou kind of held on, and you know other teams I know in the beginning of the summer were trying to lowball him and trying to just say ah you need team, you know space we'll get him off your books. But 
You know, it's actually we're at a point where you got a team that needs a goaltender, and I have one. I have another one available here, so right. it's uh, it's definitely the uh, one problem in that is who's your backup for the Islanders? Well, that. that's the thing. That I mean, becomes the issue. That becomes the issue. But I mean, I think that there are more secondary goalies available than there are starters, and that's why you move over Alamov. You have to have another yeah. another plan. And believe me when I tell you, I'm sure Lou has some type of plan when it comes to that. So. But we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back, and we have lots more to talk about. We're going to talk about the Brooklyn Nets. We're going to talk about the Yankees. We're going to talk a little bit about the Mets who are playing on some unbelievable baseball right now. <laughs> so stick with us. We're going to be right back. Sports Talk New York, WGBV. We'll be right back. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. We have Christian Arnold from AM New York here. He is the beat writer for the Brooklyn Nets, and we are now going to delve into a little bit of basketball because the Nets... Are a mess, bro. <laughs> you know, I'm so used to. I mean, the, look, when I was when I was young, the Nets were were a disaster. Mm-hmm. You know, like they, they they were, and then the Knicks have been a disaster ever since Larry Johnson left town. So, <laughs> you know, now we're back to the Nets being in complete shambles. Like I, I don't know what happened. Sean Marks came in here, he wiped the slate clean. He ends up getting Kyrie, gets gets Kevin Durant, ends up with James Harden, like. We're looking at we're looking at a dynasty here. You're looking at uh, a paper dynasty. Yeah. Well, that's what it ended up being a paper. What did they play like 14 games together over Something the course like of two that, years? Yeah. So here we are. James Harden forces his way out of town. Um, amazingly, Sean Marks is able to acquire something for him. Right? Gets Ben Simmons, who is a guy who well, it's been talked about over and over again in Philly how he doesn't seem to really want to be that guy. Mm-hmm. You know. And he ended up getting a couple picks out of it, so on and so forth. So, okay, he gets to Harden out of town. Now we hit this offseason. First of all, I love Steve Nash as a player, mm. okay? I love to watch Steve Nash. I mean, he could be, it didn't matter what team, he could be on a last-place team, whatever. I loved watching Steve Nash play basketball. I cannot watch Steve Nash be a head coach because it's just basic things you know, timeouts, rotation, you know, rotational uh, mistakes. I, I, I don't, I don't get it. Okay, okay. So now he's he's the head coach. Everyone says at the end of the season, you know, Steve's good. But we're happy. You know, it's great. And all of a sudden, Kyrie says he's gonna he's gonna, you know, re up. He's gonna opt into his contract. He had no choice because they basically offered him all around the league, mm-hmm. and nobody wanted him. And now you have Kevin Durant's like, you know what? I'm done with this. Get me out of here. Why is all of this all of a sudden just crumbling under the tutelage of Josiah and 
Sean Marks. Well, I don't think it's all of a sudden. I think it's just the byproduct of what has happened over the last year or so, right? You look at this year, which was a train wreck for the Nets for a lot of different reasons. Uh, you, you know, everyone wants to, and, and fairly, get on Kyrie's case for not getting vaccinated and, you know, having to sit out half the season and then being a part-time player, which created even more chaos. And I think, obviously, rubbed James Harden the wrong way. That's certainly why I think a lot of people can kind of read the tea leaves that it was part of why he wanted out of Brooklyn and went Absolutely. to Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So that was an issue. But in fairness, I think there, too, was an expectation from Kyrie Irving, and apparently there was an expectation from Kevin Durant that Joe Sy was going to do a lot more behind the scenes to try and get New York City to change some of their vaccination rules, right? You look mm-hmm. at baseball, for instance. I know you mentioned it before. I mean, the fact that you look at though the headlines from that that two week span i guess where all of a sudden you had yankee and mets players possibly being impacted by the city's vaccination rules and then a week or two later all of a sudden there's a major shift in policy with the people that run new york city and, and um in government and to allow players that aren't vaccinated to play on the field even if they are based in new york mm-hmm. all of that changed within a, a week span two week span and so I think there was an expectation from Durant, from Kyrie Irving, and maybe from some of the other guys that Joe Sy would have had a much bigger impact on trying to get that change for them. Mm-hmm. And then they saw what happened with the Yankees and the Mets, and they went, wow. They, I mean, the, there's no denying baseball change was the reason why that rule changed. And the but that was baseball doing that lobbying, not just Joe Sy. I don't think the NBA was no, looking was, to get involved that. Was in that was just the no. That was just the net, the Mets and the, and the Yankees lobbying. And really? The, the, yeah. Baseball, I'm sure the commissioner office had no, didn't have any time, but if you look at, and this is very inside politics, but just real quick, you look at a lot of the donorship and the, a lot of the influence, the Mets ownership and the, and the Yankees certainly have been involved in, in New York politics for a long time, and it definitely helped, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. So, that obviously was a big thing, but then you go through the course of the season, the team doesn't live up to the expectation, and you have James Harden forcing his way out after being disenchanted by the way things happen with Kyrie not being there for the first half of the season, being there part-time for the second half of the season. And so the drama continues. Kyrie not getting vaccinated, having to sit out, not being able to play Barclays Center, then the whole chaos with him being able to sit in the stands at Barclays Center and not being able to play. And then he goes to Barclays Center, and that's more of a circus. Which and, was just so stupid to begin, drove, to begin with. But it drove everybody crazy because everyone had to answer these questions, and Kyrie was kind of, you know, Kyrie's a very unique individual, and, and so that adds headache. And then That's, that's, stating, that's, that's stating it lightly, but yeah. okay, yes. And then you get to... The coaching aspect of all of it. Steve Nash obviously was a little out of his pay grade when it came to being yes. coaching. Mm-hmm. And so, and I don't think there was a better example than the Boston series, right? You look at everything that the Nets did and you look at everything that the Celtics did. They, they were able to adjust the matchups. They were able to use their rotation, their bench in the, in the right spot and get the right guys on the court at, at the time. And, and two, it had to have drove guys like KD and Kyrie. Crazy because that guy who was coaching Boston was the assistant coach for the Nets, and then he yep. adds the uh, the quick quick out. And I think Kyrie was still all in. I don't like, in to his credit, I think where the where where things changed was that was that May press conference that Sean Marks had in Brooklyn uh, at the Nets practice facility, where he kind of essentially started just taking shots at Kyrie Irving. Um, you know about the culture of the team, about wanting guys that are going to show up and be there every day, and I, I think that's really what drew the ire of Kevin Durant, because Kyrie and Kevin Durant are, are very close, still are very close. I think that sort of any speculation that maybe they're not as close as they were, I, I just don't think is accurate. 
don't um, think it's accurate either because I, I think that this has a lot to do with it. But, I mean, let's be honest here. Okay, Kyrie does not have the greatest reputation when it comes to no, practice and playing games and not wanting to play back-to-backs. And, you know, like there was this rumor that, that circulated just recently about him in his new contract wanting to play only 60 games and not back-to-back. Now, yeah. I know that there's no that that's probably not the case, but I don't think there's a player in the end. I don't think there's a person associated with the NBA that would say, oh, yeah, no, he would never do that. Right. So if if it's believable, that means that the stigma is already there. Right. No, 100%. Kyrie, the, the, the stigma with Kyrie, and I think there were a lot of things that kind of drew the ire of the Nets front office and Nets ownership and with Kyrie. And I'm sure his little comments at the end of the season where he was talking about, you know, helping build a team with KD and, and Sean Marks and I'm and not mentioning Steve Nash, by the way, in, in all those comments certainly right. didn't rub a lot of people the right way in the Nets front office. Mm-hmm. There was a, it was, it was a combination of a lot of different things. And for, for Kevin Durant, um, because I don't think Kyrie ever did not want to be a net. Let's put it this way. I think he got a little bit of a wake-up call when he tried to play hardball when they weren't giving him to his his contract demands, and they were like, all right, go look and see if there's another team that wants you. And the Lakers were the only team. And I think that was a real kind of slap in the face to, to Kyrie. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to Kevin Durant... Having to crawl back to LeBron, that would have been a nightmare for him. I mean, who knows what that what that situation would have been like. And apparently... Depending who you talk to, LeBron was kind of into it. But from from Kyrie, from KD's standpoint, all of this is going on. He, obviously, he's close with Kyrie. He doesn't like how the Nets ownership and Nets management, I should say, treated treated KD uh, treated uh, Kyrie, um, which is understandable too, a little bit. Um, and then you look at Golden State goes out and wins a championship, and he's like, "All right, that that's got to sting a bit more." You have all the chaos and on all the injuries that happened. And then the front office moves, not bringing back certain certain assistant coaches, not bringing back personnel that were close to Kevin Durant. Um, sort of this almost power struggle, you could call it, where the front office is trying to say, like, hey, we're we're really in charge. Even though everyone seems to think Kevin Durant's in charge, we're really in charge. Mm-hmm. And so I think all of that kind of combined and started to just drive him to a point where he's like, I don't want to be here anymore. Well, and this is the other part of it, is that Sean Marks comes from the San Antonio Spurs school of thought. You know, you know, he was, that's where he grew, you know, he played there as a player, he was there as a scout, he was there as an assistant GM, player, mm-hmm. or, or director of player development, Probably. and now he's running the Nets. The San Antonio Spurs are great organizations. Great, it's, they run a certain way. Pop has been there for forever, right? And they run their situation the way is is like, look, this is we have an open lines of communication here. Okay, we run things. You play, and David Robinson, Tim Duncan, um, they you know um, they all bought into that school of thought, and they were extremely successful. Now Durant. Who has, you know, he played, you know, he tried as much as he could in Oklahoma City yep. before he decided to, you know, I wanted to sign someplace else. He signs in Golden State. He he shuts everybody up, or at least he should have. He shuts everybody up with the way that he plays. He we wins, uh, you know, they win what three championships when he's there, right? right? He wins, uh, he wins Finals MVP two of the three years, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, right. Two times. Two he was times. and he was the best player on the court. Hands down. Every time he was out there, he was the best player on the court. So now he goes to a situation where I'm going to go someplace and I'm going to be a god if I win. But at some point or another, that whole thing where, you know, I have to have this, I have to have that, I want out, it changed. And there's a way of going about getting what he wanted here, and there's a way of not doing it. And the way he's done it, has his image has taken a hit. And I think that that's part of the reason why 
other teams are hesitant to go at this thing because this is, you know, this is not the same Kevin Durant that it was five years ago where you came in. When he went, to, when he went into Golden State, everyone talked about glowingly how he just fit in right. and everything. And now all of a sudden it's like, I want this guy fired. I want that guy fired. Like, that's not a good look. This is not a good look for him. And it's, in my opinion, it's hurting the fact, you know, like the Nets are playing hardball now. They're like, no, I want everybody that you got, every asset that you have, and I'll trade you Kevin Durant. Why? Because now he's going to go there. What's he going to do? He's going to have to do it by himself. Well, also, it's not even that. It's I think the Nets know that if they they mess this up, I mean, I mean, essentially, if they trade Kevin Durant, there's no turning back, and it goes back to the Brooklyn Nets of, you know, a couple of years ago where they were the afterthought in the in the town, and it's a it's a huge hit. I think that. Sean Marks knows that there's no replacing Kevin Durant, so he's going to try and play hardball and keep him here, which I, I don't know. You've, you've seen now reports where people are opening up to the idea that Kevin Durant could sit out, right? He could hold out, which that is, was my next topic which is a comedy. whole other problem for the Nets. Because it's a whole other problem for him. He's thirty. He's going to be 34, bro. Like, you, how long are you going to sit out? But if, here's the thing. If I'm Kevin Durant, I have... Two, three championship rings. I have two NBA finals. I get, I get like the competitiveness and the, and, but like, I'm, I'm not happy in this situation. Right? I think just thinking from Katie's perspective, I'm not mm-hmm. happy in the situation. Why am I going to bend to their will? I ha- like, it, like I know Kevin Durant has the reputation of being he's, he's the ultimate competitor. And I think you saw that all of last year too. I mean, Absolutely. he was, he, he was, was the, as solid a soldier as you could have asked for. I agree with you a thousand percent. And that's the reason why, in my opinion, this whole thing is so out of character for him. Because he is that guy that just goes out there and he just wants to win. That's that's his that's his whole mo. And this is not what we're seeing right now. Is not that guy. This is completely different. I think this is a guy who just who's done that for so long. He's like, I'm now. This is my time. I want to go where I want to go. I want to win a championship. I want to you know. I want to go to a situation where I'm most comfortable at this point. I think that's kind of what you're seeing too. Perhaps you know with mm-hmm. with sort of the shift in his tone. And so I think that's why people are now opening up to the idea of, okay, wow, this guy may not play until he gets the deal that he wants or gets traded to somewhere he wants to or whatever the case may be. And for the Brooklyn Nets, it's beneficial for them, yes, to play hardball and say, like, we want we want everything in the kitchen sink. But at the same time, they're never replacing Kevin Durant. And as soon as you make that trade, keeping Kyrie kind of becomes a little up in the air. And, and I think that, again, I think it's Nets management that really is more – bent on getting rid of Kyrie Irving than Kyrie Irving is on getting out of Brooklyn. I think that they would take a, 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 a bin of basketballs for Kyrie <laughs> Irving at this point. Like, I really, honestly, I think that they just, they really would like to move on, and there's no one that's going to take that $40 million salary. But the interesting thing through all of this, right, is this story is probably one of the biggest basketball stories or sports stories really in the country right now, right? Mm-hmm. It has been for, since KD's trade request broke, Right before free agency started, which, which was insane, was a, which was a nightmare yeah. in and itself. But and so that happens. Mm-hmm. But in New York, it's made such a minor blip, and I think it speaks to the bigger issue that the Nets have continuously had. And, and you could say the same thing too about secondary citizens. Well, I, I was going to say you could say the same thing too about the the, uh, the Islanders. It's right. the same kind of thing. Like this is a huge story nationally, but in within New York, and I've had this conversation with a couple people within New York, it kind of is just a blip on the radar, or barely a blip on the radar. Well, I think it would be a much bigger story if the Mets and the Yankees weren't having the season that they seasons that they were had that they're having. Because right now, folk, New York sports football season starting. Yep. You have 
the two uh, two of the best teams in baseball reside in the same mm-hmm. city. So yeah, it's it's definitely but it's always a, a been, distant fourth to everything else. But going that's on. always been the case with the Nets, regardless of what's going on, whatever, with, whatever, with Durant else. or not. Yeah. Correct. correct. It's always been the case, and I think that's the other issue too. You know, I always find the business aspect of sports very interesting because it has such a it has such a, a big a, impact on what goes on within the these organizations outside of that stuff right and so when you look at the nets how much when we're coming up on 10 years now it'll be 10 years now this brooklyn. that they've been in brooklyn that barclay center has been open i'd be curious to know how much of an impact that the organization has been able to make as far as being a new york sports team and not thought of as as second class citizens or being that team from jersey or being just the second basketball team in, in the city and how much has that been impacted by overzealous moves that have cost them in the long run? They come here in 2012, and uh, you know they go out and get Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett, and, and, which, and which is a complete disaster that one ended but, up being. But you look at that now, ten years later, and it's almost like we're about to relive the same thing, right? Like the Nets went out, and, and for all the credit you can give to Sean Marks for rebuilding the culture and rebuilding that organization and getting it to a point where. You could pitch it to a guy like Kevin Durant and make it and, and Kyrie Irving and make it an appealing destination. He went out and they did that, but they also gave up everything to get James Harden. They gave up a lot of their future, um, and it put them in a very precarious spot when it came to the salary cap and when sort of the money involved. And now you're almost looking at a similar situation, not necessarily with with two players that are kind of over the hill and you need to get rid of them and all that, but right. two guys that now. What is their desire to stay in Brooklyn? I mean, you already saw one in James Harden leave because the situation got so, uh, you know, untenable at that point. And now Kevin Durant's been put in that position. Well, he basically he gave up. I mean, Harden was, yeah. was just, it was, he was, it was out so noticeable. He was, he was, out the he door. was completely checked out. So, and, but I mean, look, and that's, that's Harden's thing. You know, like when he's unhappy, he just stops playing. And, you know, Durant, to his credit, didn't do that. Right. You know, gave everything he had, but, you know, as you said before, Boston completely steamrolled them. Yes. And that was something that I'm sure is sitting in Kevin Durant's craw right now. But Among other things, yeah. I'm, yes. <laughs> but I'm sure that that is the sting yeah. of, of how oh, it was last sure. year. But, and I just want to wrap this up because I do want to touch on baseball just a, for a few minutes. But, you know, in my, in, in my opinion, if, if Sean Marks is able to acquire a couple of first round, three first round picks and a young, controllable, High ceiling player, he should take that deal and run to the hills with it, because at that point he's got somebody. You still have Ben Simmons. Right. You don't know what you typically have, but right. you still have Ben Simmons. You have you, you know you have a couple of other pieces on this team. You know, you get a couple of draft picks. You get one player to hang your hat on. You know, maybe they're not an NBA you know an NBA finalist this year or next year, but at least you have something to build with, and. If Durant is, if you're not going to be able to convince Durant to stay, I mean, they're not looking to do that because they would have fired Nash already if right. that's the case. Because I don't think Nash is all that great of a coach, and Sean Marsh can't think the same thing. Right. So <laughs> there's got to be somewhere that they said, okay, if this is just about Nash, we just we can let him go, right. get somebody else, and we'll be happy, and he'll be, you know, and maybe we can get him to stay. They're not even looking to do that. Right. No, I mean that's the thing. It's it's Nash, it's Marks apparently. It's there's a lot of issues that Kevin Durant has with the organization and so I think that's why it's a bigger issue than just 
John Marks wanting him wanting John Marks, him wanting Steve Nash gone, and so. But uh, it, it's such a, a crazy situation. Now you, you put this team where that they've gone out and they tried so hard to put together this you know big three, and it, it's essentially kind of fallen apart in span of a couple months, and so. It's just one of the most fascinating things that I think has happened in New York sports in the last couple of years, and I don't know. The the crazy thing is we don't know what's going to happen next. Like we've heard, and I think part of it is is Kevin Durant's people trying to get trade talks back up and going, right? Because you, I I can guarantee you, it wasn't the Nets that leaked the information about. Sean, uh, that Kevin Durant and, and Joe Sy meeting in London, oh, and then no any of that information coming out because that was not helpful for the Nets by any stretch of the imagination. Nope. And it just puts everything back into perspective and teams going, okay, we know he's not happy there. We know they're not getting rid of their their front office or anything like that. The other interesting thing that Joe Sy did was tweeting and basically confirming that, Joe, that, that Kevin Durant had asked for that by putting out that message of support. But in my opinion, doesn't that doesn't that kind of intri- like dig them in further? Yeah. Like you're not gonna you're not gonna dictate any of this. You no, signed 100%. a four year contract. If you want, if you you have to you signed a four year contract just last year. Yeah. And you're at the you're starting to get to the you know the end of your you know your 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 prime. So how are you gonna sit here and you're gonna try and 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 strong arm me into it? No, I'm not gonna do that because then if he does it. Every player that comes here that doesn't want to stay is going to try the same thing. They're going to try to strong arm the same but front I think office. On the flip side, it's not a great look for the Nets either, and I think I think KD knows that too mm-hmm. because he knows that other players are watching what's happening right now, and they're looking at how Joe Sy is treating the players in the front office and, and all these different aspects. And they're going and anyone who's looking to go to Brooklyn or go to another team is going to go. Why would I want to go there? Or that's going to be in the top of their mind when they're going in. Uh, and being recruited to come to the Brooklyn Nets. That's, it's just one of those things that I think KD knows as well, that players are watching the situation as much as the fans, as much as basketball media is watching it. The players are watching how the situation is playing out because it's gonna have not only an impact on guys wanting to go there, but not to drag this on longer, I know you want to talk about baseball, but it has an impact on the pending CBA conversations that are gonna, they're gonna, gonna go on between the NBA Players Association and the NBA in a couple months. And you've already seen Adam Silver go and say, I don't like to see situations like this playing out the way they are. And we're gonna, and he's intimated that they, it's gonna be talked about during the CBA process. It's, it has to be. And the baseball ship has sailed, so don't worry about okay. that. So it's, it's all good. Don't worry about it. It's, it's, it's five minutes. We got The long and short of the baseball, the Mets are great. Edwin Diaz has been killing it. The Yankees are in a very precarious spot themselves because they have struggled against the better teams in, in the AL and, uh, obviously they lost two, two games to the Mets. And they they have a bit of a uh, pitching problem when it comes to their their relieving staff. So it's an interesting situation for them. Well, and okay, so now that since we're here, do you were you surprised by the amount of moves that they made? Not at all. I knew that they had to make those were all necessary moves. Benintendi, you need to make and you need to bring in someone that can hit, and you need to get someone for the outfield because you were going to get rid of Joe, Joey Gallo, who is now naturally having a tremendous <laughs> tremendous run out in L.A. I haven't lost since I got him. They have not. And I think the, and what, the, Mets, the Yankees have only won two games since they traded him, so. And he's hit two home runs now as a Dodger. Um, you needed to bring in some relief, uh, relief help in, in getting, um, well, you needed to get some starting rotation help, bringing in, Montas. Uh, Frankie Montas. Getting Lou Trevino in that trade too was, was a, was a good add as well because you needed someone to help out in the, in the, in the bullpen. He didn't look good against Boston the other night. No, but sure. he's a guy that you know can kind of go out there and play in a lot of different spots. And obviously the, the, 
kid from from Chicago whose name is now escaping me, of course, um, that they brought in also another reliever that uh, w- was needed for the for the Yankees. And naturally, the the biggest question mark and the biggest confusing move was obviously trading Jordan Montgomery. Um, which yeah, was, that which, was uh, it, it, the old adage in baseball: is you can never have enough starting pitching. And you don't it, trade it at the deadline when you, you know you bring in another starter. And it, it blew up in their face right away. It was it was the game they played? They were playing. Um, who were they playing the night of the deadline? Where uh, they could have used the. Uh, they knew they needed. You, you could tell they needed rotation help. Mm-hmm. You, in Jordan Montgomery, as as much as he struggled a little bit this season, he's had some pretty good stretches as well. So I didn't fully understand that move, especially for someone from from. Um, who's been described, nice guy, and, you know, has been described as sort of this, this star outfielder, defensive outfielder, but, um, a guy that you're not going to get into the game until September. Harrison Bader, Harrison Bader yeah. right? Harrison yeah. Bader. He's a, he's like a thorn in your side kind of a guy. He's, you know, whenever the Mets play him, it's always a, uh, you know, he makes a great catch, he gets a hit, you know, it's, he's not a, not an all-star player or whatnot, but, you know, Especially heading into, and you're looking at these teams that you're going to be playing against. You look at Houston, you look at, um, you look at the Mets, you look at the Dodgers. You know, these teams have powerful rotations. And yes, Frankie Montas definitely helps on the front end, but a pitcher like Jordan Montgomery, especially when you get to the playoffs, is, he's invaluable. So. And things are getting dicey now too. They just dropped two because they lost tonight. They dropped two to the Boston Red Sox out of three. And then you have Tampa, you have Toronto coming in, and you have the Mets next week. Mm-hmm. So it's, yep. it's, it's, Well, the Mets just came out of three games with the Phillies. They gave up two runs, all both on Friday night. They didn't, they get back to back shutouts. Philly couldn't do a thing. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, you have Noah Syndergaard standing on the field on Friday talking about, oh, I'm glad I'm playing for a team that can win the World Series. And then the Mets starting rotation and, and bullpen essentially just shuts them down yep. for three games. You know, they they won. The only reason they won Friday was on an error. Yep. So, <laughs> listen, this is going to be a lot of fun over the course of the next yeah. six weeks watching these two teams play. And, you know, it's... I'm telling you, man, baseball is, there is nothing better. In my opinion, there is nothing better than when the Mets and the Yankees are great at the same time and when the Islanders and the, and the, uh, the Rangers are great at the same time because. And the Knicks and the Nets. That'd be nice too. Yeah, well, that never really happened. I don't think we've ever had that happen. So, uh, you know. 99, maybe? I don't even think I remember 99. It's like <laughs> a blur, but. All right, guys. Well, we're going to wrap this thing up tonight. I want to thank you so much to Christian Arnold for sitting here with me for an entire hour and listening to me babble about different <laughs> things and whatnot. But hope you guys enjoyed the show. I will be back with you next month. Thank you to Brian Graves, who's behind the glass. We are out of here. Have a great night. The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. This is WGBB AM 1240 and W240 DF FM 95.9 Freeport, New York.